0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society Podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now, to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age.
1: Black Cloak to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com
2: Hi everybody, this is Marco Ciappelli on ITSP Magazine. The show that I am hosting today is my, uh, my baby. My favorite show is Redefining Society podcast. And uh, what I do here, I muse on the relationship between society and technology and the other way around because it's not a, just a one-way street, it goes both ways. Um, today we are talking about a book that is not out yet from what I understand, and uh, the author is here. He has a long story uh, history with technology and uh, this touch actually on uh, something where that is familiar with my my theme. I usually talk about dystopia and utopia and uh, The book is called The New Technology State, How Our Digital Dreams Became Societal Nightmares. So there is a a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, touch, I think, on Utopia Dystopia and probably the reality will be in the middle. But I'm not the author. The author is with me, is Dr. William James Reduchel or Reduchel. I try to explain understand how to pronounce this before and we went into phonetics and all of this and I'm sure I didn't give the (laughs) the right pronunciation so uh, Bill um, I'm calling you Bill if it's okay with you Uh, welcome to this show please tell me how badly I pronounce your name and tell a little bit about yourself to our audience
3: thanks Marco I've I, I learned to accept in a long <laughs> life and career many pronunciations, so normally I would do reducial, but don't worry about it. Redushal, okay. So I uh, I grew up with technology. I um, I was 15 when I saw my first computer, and it was a huge machine used to fire anti-aircraft missiles against Soviet bombers. Uh, I was at Sorry Air Force Base in Michigan, and I got hooked, and I have been following computers ever since then, and I'm now 77, so that's 62 years of growing up with technology, and I've seen it from when it was completely, you know, nascent, when you could do very little with it, but what you could do seemed magical at the time to everything we've, we, we've seen today. I originally was an economist, and economics got me into statistics, and statistics got me into computing, because that's how you did it. And eventually, I became more technologist than anything else. And I grew up with tech, and I've seen it. And I've been chief technology officer uh, at AOL Time Warner was my last job. I was chief strategy officer for Sun Microsystems before that. I understand tech. I've implemented it. I've done huge systems. And I understand software. I've written, you know, lots and lots of code over the years. And the what I remember from my days at, at Harvard, where I got my PhD, is I taught with John Kenneth Galbraith in his class, The New Industrial State. And one of the things that he said repeatedly was that the global elite would use technology to gain wealth and power. Well, guess what? That was said in the mid 60s, and 60 years later, he was right. And that is exactly what has happened. And I had this observation and I thought about it a lot but one day I was having a um, just a conversation with Paul Dacre and Paul Dacre in the UK, people would know he was the editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail and most people would have considered him at the time to have been the fourth, fifth or sixth most powerful person in Britain because millions of people read his views every single day and were influenced by them and he was taking me through getting me to talk about technology and how it was changing and where it came from. And he paused suddenly and he looked at me and he goes, you know, Bill, this means revolution. And that, that society can't handle this amount of change this fast. And, you know, he may be right. I mean, we, you know, change is becoming faster and faster. And when Galbraith wrote, technology change meant hardware. And it took years to, to go do, but today it's software. One person can go write software that changes the world. I mean, Google Maps uh, is one person. Uh, I mean, there some earlier inventions, but you, you're changing the world and just one person can go do it. So the pace of change is going up, not down. And yep. that's hard for people to, to handle. My economic history professor at, at, at Harvard uh, gave us a trick question one day. He said, what was the most important technology to enable the Industrial Revolution in Britain? And being good students, we guessed the steam engine, the railroad, and all sorts of things. He said, nah, it was the gin still. The Industrial Revolution made people so stressed that you couldn't brew enough beer to get everybody drunk who needed to get drunk every night. And it was only by increasing the efficiency of making alcohol with the gin still that the revolution could occur. Now, I don't, I mean, he was an esteemed professor, Alexander gershwin but But uh, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, we are stretching society in all ways. And we've ended up in a society in which we are now very efficient, but fragile. We are united, but divided. And we are increasingly unequal.
2: So and- there, there is so much... I'm going to stop you here. There, there is so much already in. you know... <laughs> <laughs> Three minutes of, of your conversation, and it's inevitable that it is like that. I mean, every time I, I talk about it, uh, even my show itself, I had to adapt the, the abstract for it. I, now it's, it's more about the fact that I am saying that this divider between the real world and the virtual hybrid digital world that we live in, it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we pretend that, that there is this, but we are living our life online. We're living our life on social media. AI is already everywhere. And people think that they need to realize that it's more pervasive than what that what we think it is. But I think that one of the things that I would like to ask you is, with the quotes that from John Kenneth Galbraith that you mentioned before, how much of that has become true because we ignore the alerts and alarms of people that in the 60s were telling us that, or is it because it's kind of inevitable that society is going to make more beer <laughs> and, right. and that's how we deal with the, with the future?
3: Well, I mean, the reason it took a book is because I don't believe there's one thing that did this, Marco. What it is, it's the cumulative effect of a lot of things, including the way the stock market works, including reforms in the United States in the 80s to tie executive compensation very closely to stock price. It's the fact that we have a very fragile stock market in which a few pennies in earnings per share can mean hundreds of billions of dollars in valuation gain or loss. And it's the fact that we assume that lots of people can write software when in fact, very few can. I mean, uh, when I was running you know, a big programming shop uh, in the 90s, you know, there was an accepted rule of thumb in the industry that maybe only 10,000 great programmers existed at any one time. Maybe it's 20,000 or 30,000 today, but it's not millions. It's tens of thousands and almost all of them work for the top five tech companies because they can afford to pay them the money that they're worth. And other companies have trouble doing that. I mean, I think that if you look at the future, almost every company is going to end up looking like a professional sports team with players and employees and the players get paid enormously because they're that valuable. The advantage that pro sports has is I know whether you're a great player. I see it on the court or the field, uh, hmm. the rink, and I can see that you, you, you're you worth that, but I don't see that with software. And so companies have trouble paying people what they may in fact be worth, but the big tech companies understand it. And they go off and recruit these people, they pay them, they they coddle them, they give them the things, and, and they haven't. I mean, one of the things I read a, a article on a year ago, is that the vikings had a thousand steel swords and one viking had gone to iran or iraq somewhere in that area and it brought back the ability to make steel and so they found about a thousand steel swords that they had but you know if you have an iron sword and i have a steel sword you're going to lose because i can cut your iron sword in half and the vikings conquered the world on a thousand steel swords and this is what the tech companies have done They've gotten the great programmers. And the great programmers aren't better by 20%. They're better by 200% or 300%, maybe even more. Um, there was a story about a, a, a columnist in the Silicon Valley, well-known Robert Scoble, who went down to SpaceX. And one of the things he asked to do was to interview the team that wrote the software that took a rocket into the sky and then landed it back on the landing pad. And they said, well, okay, it's over here. He's here. And they go, what do you mean? I want to see the team. And they go, well, there was only one person. And, and I mean, that's the thousand steel swords, right? right? And these brilliant programmers that go and create it, there are lots of people then who build derivatives stuff around it. But it's thousands of people and they, they provide the cutting edge. Well, so then that drives um, what Ricardo would have called economic rents into the people who hold them or manage them. And the big tech companies go out and recruit them. And that's where they are. I mean, they're not, they make double, triple, quadruple what they make elsewhere. And so they're able to pay them, you know, a lot of money, but it's way below the value they produce. So it's very worthwhile.
2: So, to, so- to, to run a parallel and to make it, you know, you use a few very interesting and easy to understand metaphor. I mean, the Vikings with the knowledge one knowledge that change the course of history in that particular period of history. Um, I like the idea of the running as a, as, a, as a sport team. But the difference is that, as you said, people do understand basketball, they understand soccer, they understand football. While in the technology industry, they use what they produce, the masses, but they don't understand it. So they, it's hard to even evaluate, not only from a financial perspective, but also from what change is making to our society, the knowledge that they have in their hands. So am I, am I getting somewhere here in, yeah. in creating more divide because of knowledge and power and, and money eventually?
3: I mean, anybody who flies will occasionally, and they, if the airplane you're on has seat back entertainment, occasionally they have to restart it and you should just look at that screen and it goes on for two or three minutes and it teaches you the amount of technology i mean we talk in software all the time about stacks Mm -hmm. and it's now a very complicated stack and you see it at the top and computer scientists would call it an abstraction layer and you see that abstraction layer it's your phone and and you can figure out how to understand it but what's below it yeah. is just layer and layer and layer of very complicated technology. And the people who are very good at the very bottom of that stack are very rare. I mean, hundreds of people like that in the world. And, you know, the result is that you, you own it. I mean, one of Steve Jobs great uh, conclusions when he was running next after uh, Apple is that the operating system was everything. And he was fortunate. He hired a brilliant guy and he named Avi Tavanian and Avi came in and wrote the next operating system. And then everything that you run on Apple today is a derivative of the stuff that Avi did. And, you know, because only the operating system, that is the key linchpin technology. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who didn't get it. Um, There was a fortune reporter who interviewed Bill Gates in in 1999 and Gates was being cocky as he could be and the reporter finally said how can you be so self-confident that you're going to beat all of these other great CEOs that were out there and he said I understand software they don't. Mm. He was right.
2: I mean, it's the knowledge of the, the shaman that, that knows how to do things but he wants to keep the secret kind of like the alchemist. Uh, right. Let's get a little bit more into, into the book. So the main title is the new technology state. And I think that you painted already a pretty a pretty clear vision, although I'm sure you have to go deeper in the in the book. But then, you know, you, you talk about this idea of going from a, a dream state into a nightmarish state. But you also finish to say that, that maybe there is something we can do about it. So tell me a little bit about the structure of the book and and you know where you start and Don't tell me the end, of course, (laughs) but, you know, kind of like to give a teaser to what the book structure is and maybe who you write it for as well, who you had in mind as an audience.
3: Well, there's there's sort of an overview, um, and I am an economist, so it talks about neoclassical economics and how that's become the linchpin in public policy in the country. And, And we did a lot of things that we thought were going to do with, you know, um, neoclassical economics but neoclassical economics dates from the late 1700s uh, and tech was not you know there wasn't any tech right and economic growth was very low and the foundation of uh, neoclassical economics comes from ricardo and adam smith and smith wrote two books and to your point of the the podcast, The second book is The Wealth of Nations, which has the phrase as if by an invisible hand and is the one that that says that free market economics works. But in his earlier book, Smith says that he believes that human beings want to be both loved and to be lovely and that that tempered capitalism because people wanted to be lovely. I'm not so sure that we have that ethic anymore. If we ever did, people may still want to be loved. But they now want to be rich and the the rich may be overpowering the the lovely so then i talk about something called halstead length and halstead length goes back to a professor from purdue maurice halstead who wondered in the 80s why were some programmers 100 times better than others and he then studied the human brain and what he came up with is this concept of how large is a memory chunk. And the theory of the brain that works, whether it's completely true or not, I don't know. We can't, you know, we don't know how to pull apart a brain yet. But that we store memory in chunks and the chunks vary in size. And he came up with a bunch of really clever heuristics to measure size. And he found that for the average person, the size was a number that he he, he labeled 250. And that turned out to be 50 lines of software, he found out that the very best programmers—that was in sixty-five thousand, hundreds of times longer. And so you think Beethoven or James Joyce or you know um, the Aborigines in uh, Australia who can tell you where every waterhole is in the outback and how to get between them, the London cab driver who understands how to get you to any street address and had to be taking a test on it. It's all about Halstead Lane. And great Halstead Lane makes you a fantastic programmer because you understand the interactions and you're much faster at, and that means that there's a scarcity. And anytime there's a scarcity, there are economic rents. And that is what's happened is that the tech companies have basically harvested up all of the people who are great programmers, that they get paid very well, but the companies get paid even better. And that that's where it's come from. And then, you know, I remember when Facebook started, I knew a lot of the people, I spent a lot of time with Sean Parker, uh, random reasons, but when he introduced the the social network, the, the feed into Facebook, they didn't really know what it was. And actually, one of my employees was the first to use it um, for business purposes and marketing. And he got you know, hundreds of thousands of people to sign up. And it was the first time. And then they shut it down, which they you know, should have. But I then go through how if you look at the uh, 2016 election, Trump spent $150 million in the last three weeks of the campaign in five counties. There are 30 some, 3,000 plus counties in America. He spent that money on Facebook in five counties. And that's why he won. He won by 78,000 votes. And those votes came from those counties. And it was understanding how you could use data to target people. And what Trump did, which no one had ever done before because they couldn't, is he put out ads to discourage people from voting. He knew he wasn't gonna convince someone to vote for him but he could convince the person not to vote at all um that was very effective and so he ran ads primarily to afro americans uh on hillary clinton's support of three strikes and your outlaws and he got the uh, people not to vote i mean that's the margin in detroit the margin for michigan uh and it was a brilliant use of technology and and you know the the young guy that helped them do it was down in the polling headquarters in texas and he then became he then repented because all his friends hated him and he tried to help defeat trump in 2020 uh but it was just this use of technology and you know it was pretty there's nothing wrong with it it's just he didn't have to say i'm donald trump and i paid for this message and what you saw was a clip of hillary clinton urging three strikes in your outlaws which you know turn out to be a very racist effect On society and he was able to do that and you know people began to pay attention and and look at it more so you know it it just it continues down this path of how people have found that having aggregated data which then allows you to build algorithms and you then apply the algorithms you can then target messages and that ends up being very effective makes more money or in the case of the Trump campaign, got you more positive votes. And so, you know, we, we tried. I mean, I re engineered companies. I saved, you know, I did a one project which we estimate made $1.4 billion for us over time. Uh, you know, remarkable gains in efficiency with tech. And, you know, it, even up until then, you know, really up until the 2010s. Nobody ever looked at the negatives. It always was with the positive, the great things you got: Google Maps, um, gaming, um, you know, the ability to have video conferences, the ability to do this. All of that seemed great. It's only in the last ten years or so that we've begun to see, oh, wait a minute, there's a downside to all this, and you know, we then had compensation schemes in place that allowed people to make enormous amounts of money, and in fact it's tax advantaged because the tech companies are allowed to deduct from their taxes the actual income that the employee gets from a stock option, not the, then they don't have to take that out. So they give an option and the option at grant is zero because it's at the current market price. And then the market price goes up 20 fold. When the employee sells that option, converts the stock and sells it, they get to deduct the gain from their taxes without any cash expense. So effectively, it's a huge subsidy to companies to pay via stock. And then analysts starting in 2000 began to let them use you know non-GAAP earnings where they would ignore stock compensation in reporting it, and it didn't show up. So you've you got a whole bunch of little things compounding that make it very very useful in the 80s congress went against corporate pensions and up until the 80s if you were a ceo of a company you took you your biggest wealth was your corporate pension which only was valuable if your company was healthy 10 years down the road to pay the pension so you managed differently but when we, we changed it so the only way to have a retirement was to make wealth The only way to get wealth was to get your stock price up and sell. So you change the incentives on corporate management from, you know, uh, harvesting the, you know, maintaining the company and sustaining it for long-term growth to harvesting it, you know, pump and dump. So you pretty
2: much take your pension right away. Yeah. (laughs) No no matter how the company then goes. No matter how
3: the company does. And then Uh, you don't care what happens to the company after you retire.
2: Which is not very ethical if you think about it. So, so that the, there is the the people that own the technology understand the technology then there is the people that uh understand the technology and use it not necessarily being technologists but as the example of politicians an example of people that play in the stock market and then there is the rest of us i'm going to put myself into that where We use this technology, we have fun with it, we watch YouTube, TikTok, and all of that. And at the same time, we have been instrumentalized by those that understand. And so we see the top of the iceberg, which is white and shiny, and then there is the the bottom of the iceberg, which is much, much bigger, and we have no idea what is under the stock. So the question comes to my mind, it probably is in the mind of the audience, the listener right now, which is are we screwed or is there something we can do about it? I'm thinking legislation, I'm thinking, and I'm even thinking AI that you haven't even mentioned right now, but that's another big headache probably coming down the line. So is I there mean, hope?
3: I mean, there, there are a couple of things. Even the top of the iceberg has insidious effects, right? I mean, in the 50s, we were united because there were three, four five television networks and we all watch the same shows. We all have the same thing. You know, today, I mean, YouTube just reported that the majority of their viewing is on smart TVs. People aren't watching these unifying things. They're on YouTube watching individual shows. So we be, end up being, we don't have any unifying thing. I mean, people. Like a are,
2: common culture. That right.
3: Unified as. And. and that I think is is very insidious. I mean, I talk to younger people, and they all have my show. They all have a show that they're binging on on watching, and they're not the same. I mean, and then one of the elements of friendship is you agree to watch their show. I mean, it's it's a interesting dynamic to me, who grew up on you know um, you know broadcast television. In fact, in my case, the first TV I watched was all Canadian because I lived closer to Canada than mm-hmm. to any tv station so i watch canadian tv um the other thing is that we've turned our kids into answer seekers instead of knowing how to solve a problem the first thing they do is they go to google or facebook or youtube which is also google and and look for an answer and if they don't find an answer they're not sure what to do ai is going to be 10x on that right ai you know already i mean i use poe a lot and I go to the various uh, LLMs that are out there, and you get great answers. I mean, in general, they're better than you're going to get from search if it isn't current. I mean, because they the, these AI engines aren't current; they only go through, right now, through last year. So I think that those two effects are are, are very you know very harmful. I'm not sure how to how to solve them. I mean, uh, you know, it, you know, having only you know, and when everybody. You know, you see a family go to a restaurant and sit down and they all pull out their devices and they sit there during the whole meal. All, you know, they don't even talk. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, I don't know why you go out to a restaurant anyway. That, that's mm-hmm. another thing. But, um, you know, so, you know, look, I, I'm I'm a believer that. Uh, competition is still the right answer. And there's no reason why Google needs to be one company. It could be many companies. There's no reason why Facebook needs to be one company. It could be several companies. And I think the world's better off if we have that. I think if we have more companies. So the one one radical thing that I propose is that we tax market capitalization and that companies that are bigger than, I said $100 billion, have to begin to pay an annual tax Having a market cap above 100 billion, it basically is market enforced antitrust. Make the companies break themselves up instead of aggregating, so that we have a handful of huge companies. Let's have a universe of ten times as many, and and let the companies do it in a in a way that's shareholder friendly. I'm not trying to take wealth away from anybody. In fact, I think there would be more um, more wealth um, generated this way. Um, I certainly you know, would change the tax incentives that uh, favor the, the dynamic of allowing the big tech companies to get this huge tax break by paying their favorite programmers a lot of money and then getting a tax break for it rather than, than actually paying for it. Uh, so I think there's a set of taxes we could do that not necessarily to raise revenue, but to drive behavior uh, mm. and, and go make that. I mean, there's a a simple suggestion is to allow the post office to postmark emails for a very small sum. Because if you had postmarked email, you could set your email system to reject it if it wasn't postmarked, unless it was an address you knew. And it would then cost money to send political uh, emails or uh, unsolicited things, which today is relatively costless, and force people to make a decision. And I think that even a tiny amount. The day before the Georgia Senate runoff in December of uh, of last year, I got 500 emails soliciting money from both Democrats and Republicans. They were all alike. They all had fear because fear is profitable. The problem is technology has made fear the most profitable way to get it. You don't get money by putting out a reasoned analysis you get money by sending out a appeal that goes to your emotion, that goes to fear. Yep. And as long as that is the way to make money, then that is the way politics is going to go. And so you have to address that. Now, I do I think that politicians would like doing this? No. Uh, I, I don't have much hope that this would ever get enacted. But, uh, I mean, I got 500 emails in one day. Uh, yep. And about 300 well, 300 from one party, 200 from another, but it didn't matter. And they were all just very, very uh, fear. You mm-hmm. know, if this happens, this is what, you know, the world. And, you know, you can't, we've made fear the optimal strategy. It means we're divided. In
2: a in a lot of industries too. I mean, it's not, I mean, politics is certainly true and it's more true than ever. Although it's always been a very strong argument <laughs> to, to be fearful. I mean, I have fear of, the enemy whatever that enemy is
3: excels it's the same
2: thing exactly yeah but so your point your uh, point, and, and we're going to start wrapping here about um breaking this larger company into minor one um do you think this will help to create more transparency and and of course and healthier competition but also more transparency so that um, the educator, the parents, uh, the, the politicians can really start to understand what has been so secretive right now. I mean, is that is that the idea? Because I can see that to be one of the thing. Like you know, if you have a huge castle, it's easy to beat walls around it. But the smaller the castle is, the more right. Right. you know, you, you can fly over it. You can
3: you get more innovation. You get right. more. You get more decisions that are there and you know, if you go to a venture capitalist today and say, I've got this great startup and we're going to compete against Facebook, they say, gee, it's great to see you. Uh, time's up, uh, you know, because they don't believe you can you can attack them. And uh, so you get more innovation, you get more di- variety, you get more diversity. I mean, they used to, be, I mean, but you need interoperability between them. And as long as they have these big castles, they don't have any interoperability. And that, you know, and, and you see the struggle that all these sites have, even Discord. Um, you know, it's just very hard to compete against the monoliths. Um,
2: and I'm sorry, you're an economist. So I, I I look more at the societal thing, but this idea that sometimes you then develop something, but your competitors coming up, you just go and swallow it and buy it. So right. your worry is that it doesn't matter. You have enough money to say, well, the new thing is not going to hurt me, but it's actually going to benefit me because I'm going to put it under my umbrella. And again, you're just building bigger and bigger and bigger. So, um, I mean, do you have hope that <laughs> that the U.S. are going to move in this direction? I'd...
3: Well, certainly, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of politicians that are nervous. I'm afraid that they're lawyers, and lawyers think that they should. Um, uh, regulate and I've had my encounters with regulators over the years uh, and they're, they're just I mean you know they get paid a fraction of what the big tech giants pay uh, I mean they are just not I mean the, the better teams are always on the other side and I mean if you go to Washington and you ask people they're talking about regulating AI and I listen to the conversation and go, you don't have any idea or I saw a task force, uh, I mean, I looked at the names on there and I looked at their resumes. There wasn't one person on the task force that even knew what a stable coin was <laughs> or how Bitcoin worked or where, where it went. I mean, the government's always gonna be behind. So what regulation does is regulation builds barriers to entry for your competitors. And so you, you'd love to be regulated once you've won because that's another barrier that keeps competition away. So they're all favoring regulation. I mean, we have the the Graham uh, Warren bill to create a digital uh, commission. And and, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm sorry that, I mean, I think one of the worries that we have to have as a country is that China's run by engineers for the most part. Uh, We're run by lawyers. And in the longer term, engineers win. Uh, Lawyers worry about dividing the pie not about growing it. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's a challenge and tech isn't going to stop. I mean, no, you know, it, 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 you know it's not going to stop at all.
2: No, Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, before I, I close uh, with, uh, with the name of the book and then many other things, I like to leave you a couple of minutes to just make a pitch for, for the book and, and who you have in mind as your audience i mean it seems like you're going deeper into economics and politics so you you hopefully everybody will read it of course that's the dream of every author but do you have some some target audience that you think they'll be more affected by and benefit by reading the book
3: well you know i think i was very strongly motivated by john kenneth galbraith i mean he was very good to me Uh, when I worked with him years ago, 50 years ago, and he was very prescient in seeing how the world went. And so this book tries to mimic in some ways the new industrial state and being a more general view. But I also admit that it's at least a medium lift because it's talking about a very complex issue and trying to explain how we got to where we are. And it's not one simple thing it's not i mean there isn't one thing that you go and flip a bit and now the problem goes away we have engineered this through lots of policies and through you know history that that, that's gotten us to where we have these global monopolies uh that are there i mean the idea in 2002 2003 if you had a hundred thousand users boy that was a success you know today there are multiple sites that have over four billion uh, I mean you think of that that's uh, I mean Pope Mark or you know I mean it's uh, it, it's such a change so but I hope I mean that there's going to be some classroom use I assume that people in you know, studying economic history or or political science on how do you regulate change. Um, but I really wrote it much in the tradition of Galbraith and you know, in his honor uh, to try and educate the public at large as how we got to where we are. And you know, nobody did anything wrong. I, I mean, I, I make the point repeatedly that no one did anything wrong other than maximize profits. Right. Um, and we just created a set of incentives that have gotten us here. And if we don't change those incentives, we won't change it. And yeah. as long as we leave the incentives in place, this is where we're going to be.
2: Yeah, and I think you said something that we we all agree when we talk about technology, which is not going to be stopped, but we can't kind of try to direct it and to regulate it. Again, I'm definitely with you in that. So uh, this is the end of this bill. I really thank you so much for being on it for thank all you. the audience. Uh, the book is the new technology state on how our digital dreams became societal nightmares and what we can do about it. Is going to come out of September 12, twenty twenty three. I'm going to put all the links in the notes for the show and how to get in touch with Bill and whatever he wants to share resources up uh, up to you and everybody else. Uh, I, I'm definitely as a you know doctor in political sciences interested in technology. I'm definitely going to read it. So Bill, I'm looking forward to to that. And again, thank you so so much thank for you. taking your time.
3: Thank you.
1: Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable, contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers, To help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impact of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.